You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places, and filling all things, the treasury of blessings, and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our Sunday Gospel Reflection at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Annie Mitchell, how are you doing? I am doing well, Father Hezekiah. How are you? It's good to see I'm, you. I'm very blessed here. Very excited to jump into these texts, which are all about the kingdom of God. And um, on the seventh Sunday in ordinary time. 17th. Um, what did I say? Seventh? 17th yeah. Sunday in ordinary 17th. time. And um, and at first glance, at first glance, first reading the Old Testament might appear to be primarily about the gift of wisdom. It, it certainly is. But for a for maybe a further purpose. But we'll have a chance to look into that. So Annie, give us our biblical passages here. Yes, absolutely. And uh, hello and welcome to all of the newcomers to SGR this week. Yeah, I should say something, by the way, for our our new participants at uh, the Institute of Catholic Culture Sunday Gospel Reflections. We do this each week as a way to dive deeply into our biblical text in preparation for Sunday so we can really get everything, all the goods out. So we want to, you know, contextualize, spend a lot of our times contextualizing what we're looking at because a text without a context is? No text at all. Yeah. What else do you need to know? If you are not a member at the Institute of Catholic Culture, you're missing out because we have over like 2,000 hours of free education available to you. Everything free of charge at the ICC because Jesus gave it to us freely and therefore we give freely. Annie, let's jump into our biblical text here. Yes. Okay. So the first reading for the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time is from the first book of Kings chapter three. We'll start with verse five and then read verses seven through 12. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 119. The gospel is Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. And the epistle is from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Okay, Annie, well, let's jump right into it here in uh, 1 Kings, huh? Give us Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you're a veteran SGR participant, your Bible should basically fall open to the 1 Kings. (laughs) Yes. Chapter three is where we are headed and we're starting with verse five we'll skip over verse six i don't know why and then uh read through 12 nice you ready to go father yep all right here we go the lord appeared to solomon in a dream at night god said ask something of me and i will give it to you solomon answered oh lord my god You have made me your servant king to succeed my father, David. But I am a mere youth, not knowing at all how to act. I serve you in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a people so vast that it cannot be numbered or counted. 
Give your servant, therefore, an understanding heart to judge your people and to distinguish right from wrong. Who is able to govern this vast people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon made this request. So God said to him, because you have asked for this, not for a long life for yourself, not for riches, nor for the life of your enemies, but for understanding so that you may know what is right. I do as you requested. I give you a heart so wise and understanding that there has never been anyone like you up to now. And after you, there will come no one equal to you. Well, of course, a beautiful reading. I almost laughed actually when when Solomon said, for who is able to govern this vast people of yours? I can only imagine God saying, yep, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like being a pastor of a church. <laughs> it's not going to work. I believe it. So I want to start off, you know, we, we talk a lot about first king. So I kind of want to ask about Solomon himself. We we think of him, you know, we talk about him as the son of David, which I mm-hmm. think we can kind of let that term wash over us like one of those churchy terms. You know, we we discuss this from time to time. So can you tell us about the person of Solomon and why he's so important for us in in understanding Jesus and yeah. And how this story is part of that. Well, Solomon gets a bad rap at the ICC, okay? Because we're always going to 1 Kings chapter 11 and all of Solomon's sins, right? We're always doing that because it's those sins which end up exacerbating the situation or not exacerbating is the right word, but, but setting up the situation which will end in the Babylonian exile, which is so critical to the gospel story. Right, and right. so we're always going back to that problem. but. Of course, there's a bigger story than S- S- Solomon's sins, and that is Solomon's holiness and his role and place in salvation history, which is very important. Um, and uh, and to understand that, I think the best thing for us to do is to go back to probably one of the most important, famous passages in the Old Testament, which we don't go to enough here at the ICC. I feel bad about that, but I kind of take it for granted. We've got to do it today, and that's 2 Samuel chapter 7. you got to know 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you understand the whole whole business, right? So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, finally, after many moons, David has taken taken Jerusalem, right? In chapter four and five, he finally takes Jerusalem. So you imagine these ti- from the time of the Exodus to the coming in to the Holy Land, to all the time of the judges, to the kingdom of Saul, to the kingdom of David, all that time, they have not finished the conquest. And why have they not finished the conquest? I'm going to put you on the spot, Annie. Why is it that God's people did not actually conquer the land for generations after they entered it? Well, didn't God say they wouldn't? Well, no. He simply said that they wouldn't if... Oh, if they started... Going around with the pagans, and that's what's yeah, going on. Okay. So all this time they've been they've been struggling all during the Book of Judges. I mean, we've done a Bible study with Father Sebastian, the Book of Judge, uh, Book of Judges. I'd recommend you go back and listen to that yeah. as a preparation for harlot. this. Yeah, playing the harlot exactly, and that's the fundamental problem. So it's finally here 
in chat in in Second Samuel chapter five and then chapter six that they finally establish they take Jerusalem and finally the Ark of the Covenant is brought and and all of a sudden now David says says now I'm going to build a house for God. Right now, there's a couple of interpretations of this text. And I just got to lay it out there for you. That if you read Second Samuel chapter six, you'll see that David doesn't always act as we would have hoped. Yeah, and he does some maybe some dancing in front of the ark, which may not have been advisable there in chapter six. Hmm. Not to get into it too much, but you can read it for yourself. But in chapter seven, he then says, "I am going to build a house for God." Now, this, you think yourself, is a good thing because we should always be making the temple of the Lord a holy place and preparing and building. I'm right now in my own parish, building a church hall and planning on renovating the interior of the church because it was a Protestant church that we built, we we purchased, and now we're trying to renovate the interior. So we want to make it beautiful, according to our tradition, a beautiful place for, for the Lord, a temple that praises God. So this is a David's heart is right, but there's 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 some problems, and that is that David hasn't been necessarily acting appropriately. And and if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter twelve, so you keep your hand in Second Samuel seven and Deuteronomy twelve, we're given an instruction. And of course, in the life of David and the life of Solomon, Deuteronomy is going to uh, be a big old like you know warning sign to them to going. Mm-mm, Probably not a good idea. And so verse, let's see, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. You there? Deuteronomy 12, 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here this day, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not, you have not as yet come to the rest, to the inheritance which the Lord God gives you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord God gives you to inherit, when you get when he gives you rest from all of your enemies round about you. So now this is this is a prophecy of this moment, right? This is a prophecy of what we're looking at when mm-hmm. when they finally do take Jerusalem. Yeah. And you're safe in safety, verse 11, then to the place which the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and offerings and more. So this is, I, I point this out because this is a consistent problem. It happens with, with the election of Saul, right? When, 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 when Saul is chosen by the people, of course, Deuteronomy warns them, when you come into the land and you're going to choose a king, don't choose a king like all the nations. Yeah. yeah? That's um, exactly and what so, they wanted. And so, yeah. but that's what they wanted, right? And so the what we could say here, if we're looking at 2 Samuel 7, in a bit of a negative interpretation of this is that is that David pretty full of himself now has conquered Jerusalem and now he says I'm choosing the spot I'm going to design the house of God right think of your modern church architects who decide that they know better than God as to how a church should be designed and they make god awful monstrosities that only deserve to be destroyed and so I think having this ex- experience in our own minds of what's happening today, we can understand 2 Samuel chapter 7, that Solomon says, or that, that uh, David says, 
now I'm going to build a house for God because I'm awesome, right? I'm great. I'm going to do this great thing. God says, not so fast. Yeah. You're not going to build my house, but your son is going to build my house. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7 has a bit of a negative, but also, also the positive of the guarantee of David's house, David's throne. And if we take a look here in um, verse chapter, I'm back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Well, we could start with verse 10, just so we get a little bit of the, of a little, okay. And this is, uh, this is the Lord speaking then to David, because in chapter seven, verse one, we say, now when the, when the king dwelt in his own house and the Lord had given him rest from all the nations round about him, which is exactly Deuteronomy, right? That we just looked at mm-hmm. the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart. For the Lord is with you. But then God appears to him and says, not so fast, right? And then in verse verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel. This is the Lord speaking. And will plant them and that they may dwell in their own place and be be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I have given you rest from all the enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. Now, this text becomes the primary driver of the messianic hope. I cannot underestimate how important 2 Samuel chapter 7 is. Because when the throne of David falls in 2 Kings chapter 25 to the Babylonians, the people of God say, (laughs) Lord, don't you remember what you said? And therefore, they have to grapple with the question, what did the Lord mean in 2 Samuel chapter 7? And how is it that the throne of David is going to remain forever, even though it is apparently fallen? And this drives the people's hope in the coming of the Messiah being a quasi-divine figure who is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. Hmm. Because when we read the next verse in this text, verse 13, he will build a house from my name and establish his throne forever. I will be his father. And he will be my son. Lord, have mercy. God is going to have his son. Right? And this is it becomes a big question, right? Among the Jews. Who is this guy that's coming? Who is the Messiah that's coming? He is both the son of David and the son of God. Yeah? And this drives the Messianic hope, which is driving the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Sadducees and everybody in the coming of the Messiah. Okay. So that's all very important as a background to who Solomon is, because Solomon now is going to do a great act. I mean, he does a lot of stuff, but the primary thing he does, the primary thing he does is he builds the temple of God. What does the son of David do? He builds the temple of God and his throne will remain forever. Sound familiar, Christians? Yes, it does, because that is fulfilled. And yes, the son of David, 
Yes, who is also the son of God. So this driving hope that Solomon becomes an icon, an image of what the Lord is going to do, right? Which is why the Lord goes and turns over tables and says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days and throughout the gospel. Look, I'm just going to flip over there. Turn, turn, turn very quickly with me to the gospel of Matthew. Keep your hand in 2 Samuel chapter 7, gospel of Matthew. Just check this out. Just I, I literally, I did not prepare this, but but you can you can see what's going on here right first of all matthew starts out with a genealogy right and then yeah it's all about david right i mean first chapter 1 verse 17 all the generations from abraham to david were 14 generations from david to the people of babylon 14 generations and so forth and then joseph in verse 20 joseph son of david yes and then chap- look at chapter 3, verse, verse w- uh, 2, kingdom of heaven. You see that there? Chapter 4, verse 17, kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 3, kingdom of heaven. V- verse 10, kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, kingdom of heaven. Okay, I'm just flipping through here. Uh, verse uh, Chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom, verse chapter 7, verse 21. No, no, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes. And then look at this, chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 27. You've got son of David. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, chapter 12, verse 23. Son of David. Verse 28, kingdom of God. Okay, do I have to keep going? Kingdom of heaven, it just keeps going. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Finding all these so fast. It's all about this. Why? So fast. Hold on. I want to ask, how do you find those so fast? Oh, well, because my Bible's highlighted with purple because it's for the kingdom. So anytime you have kingdom, you highlight it. That's what I do. But you can do whatever you want, but you got to highlight your Bibles. That's important. You should always, right there, look at this, right there at my fingertips. Okay. Well, that really came in handy for this study. Okay. Sorry. Go back to your point. So my my point is that second Samuel chapter seven drives the messianic hope that comes full fruition in the gospel, because that's what they're looking for. Right. Who was uh, uh, Simeon the just, right? He was, he was, uh, how does he describe Danny as in expectation, right? Looking. Yeah. Looking for the kingdom of God. Yeah. yeah, he's looking for the kingdom of God. He's expecting the Messiah to come. Yeah, and 2 Samuel chapter 7 drives this hope. So you're, I'm going way far afield, except that you, you have to under... Okay, I, I can't finish there. I can't finish there. I'm sorry. No, you're not going way go far afield. We've just been spending, what, three weeks on kingdom of heaven yes. parables. I mean, we have to do this. This is connected. our kingdom of heaven week. Okay, because yeah. we've talked a lot about stuff. But to be honest with you, I was taking a shower the other day and I said, you know what? We did that Bible study. We didn't really get into the kingdom of heaven business. And we yeah, yeah. need to do that. So I'm glad we're going to do it today. But in order to do it, we have to now turn back to First Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter 3 is where we're at. And then having turned to First Kings chapter 3, I'm just going to look at chapter 6, which is well, titled in my Bible, the building of the house of the Lord. 
Mm. So yeah, I, I point that out to you to say, notice how uh, how the 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 text is here. Right, it's Solomon comes on the scene, and immediately we're talking about building the temple of God. Yeah, yeah. and that temple. Here's the next point we got to do here at this point is to understand that temple in its context, because once again, a text without a context, no text at all. A temple is without a context, there's no temple at all. Yes, the temple of God in Jerusalem is not just a building. It has a greater significance than that. And its greater significance has to do with God's bigger plan. And that is the restoration of his image and likeness on earth the restoration of his original plan in paradise, which is why I uh, look at chapter six, verse what? 18. Chapter six, verse 18, the cedar within the house, this is the temple of God, was carved in the form of gourds mm -hmm. and open flowers. Chat, verse 23 in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood. Yeah? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Two cherub. Where do we remember two cherubim from? Look at verse 29. He carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Verse 32. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Verse 35. On them he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He sure likes angels. And flowers. And flowers. And gourds. And like lilies. A garden. Looks like a garden to me. Yeah. Solomon built a garden covered it in gold because gold is a symbol of divinity for the ancient in the ancient world. It's a divine garden. It's mm -hmm. a restoration of the garden. Now, here's where we got to go big picture to realize what we're looking at here. The temple is built out of rocks and stones and dead wood, right? Yeah. Because, because of the fall. This beginning of a restoration begins much like our Lord's life, which comes to its final most important moment in the tomb because he must get those who are dead, right? Solomon builds, in a sense, a dead garden which now must come alive. We have to understand this as Catholics because the Garden of Eden, the temple in Jerusalem, and the Catholic Church are one reality. It's the presence of God's dwelling on earth. Yeah? And Solomon is a, is a, is a, uh, the hands of the Lord in this way, right? He's regaining, reestablishing his garden. And he does so when he says in Deuteronomy, where I tell you, to build it. Why? Because the Lord knows what he's doing. Yeah. Look at, look, look at chapter six. Look at the last verse of chapter six. How long was Solomon building the temple? The last verse of chapter six. Last verse of chapter six. Read it for us, Annie. Um, let's see here. And in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Like God who established the, the garden days. in seven days. 
Yeah. Wow. And why seven? Because seven is a number for covenant because it shares a common root with the word for oath or covenant in the Hebrew language. So the number seven is a symbol of the covenant, the joining together of God and man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I got to take you to another a little bit. Uh, we have to go one step further. And that is by way of a quotation from an intertestamental text, which I think you'll appreciate. Seven oh. years in building it, like the seven days of creation. Bingo. Exactly. Now, listen, what you have to realize is that when God did instruct Solomon to build the temple, the place he identified for him to build it was believed by the Jews to be the very location where God had created Adam and Eve, the rock of Moriah in Jerusalem. Listen to this. Look, listen to this insight, this beautiful quotation from a Jewish midrash. It says this. This rock, the rock of Moriah. Now, we know that today the dome of the rock is built in Jerusalem, right? That golden dome, very famous. It's a Muslim shrine. Well, the reason they took it is because of what the ancient peoples believed about that spot. That's why it's called the dome of the rock. Listen to this. This rock, also known as the foundation stone, holds a special place in Jewish tradition. It is upon this rock, here's the quote, it is upon this rock that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. And it is upon this rock that Solomon built the temple. It is from this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is this rock, which is the capstone to the gates of Hades. In summary, what did the what did the Holy One, blessed be he, do? Like a man setting in place the central pole of a tent, he raised his right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deeps and made it the pillar of the earth. Therefore, it is called the spindle stone, for it is the very navel of the earth from which the whole earth is stretched out. And upon this, this stone is the house of the Lord. Wow. Yeah, no wonder God said, don't you just build it anywhere because we are going to reestablish the Garden of Eden. Yes? Wow. All right. That's a long-winded way of telling you who Solomon was. (laughs) All right. Now let's talk about his wisdom here that he asks for because this is a a rather significant moment in his life. It is a a significant moment. And I just need to flip back there. We're going to flip back to 1 Kings chapter 3. Yeah, and then we have to move on because I think we're almost out of time and we've only been. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, First Kings chapter three. Um, yes. And uh, and why? So I would I would just say this. Why was the Lord pleased with Solomon? And why did Solomon, why, why was wisdom granted to Solomon? Because that's what he requested. He didn't request all the riches of the world, like the kings of all the other nations. He didn't request all the length of days, like the, like all the other nations. And God said, therefore, I will grant you your request. Yes. And pile on all the rest of it besides. Yes. And you can read all of that here in first Kings chapter three What's important for us to remember. And I think we talked about this last week or two weeks ago about what wisdom is, right? Wisdom is the knowledge of the beginning, like the origin, the the cause and, and the final cause, like the, the, the purpose of the thing, right? So Solomon has wisdom, which is why he is granted to build the temple of God, Hmm. right? Because he knows he, he he ultimately he is the one who's come to know the Lord himself. Maybe we can add just a little bit more to this, and and or maybe we should wait till the gospel reading. We'll wait till the gospel reading. Uh, yeah, because the gospel well, is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, yeah. 
And it's here, now that we understand what this location is and the imagery used around it, we can begin to understand a fuller picture of the wisdom which is given to Solomon regarding the dwelling place of God on earth. Yeah. And it, it, what's important to realize is that everything that Solomon builds on earth is actually patterned after the temple of God in heaven. Well, yeah. that's what a king's supposed to do, right? You always talk about the the king needs to put things in the proper order and and all that's of right. that. And and well, yeah, if you know what the origin of things is, then if you're the king, you've got to operate like God. You know, we, if we can go back very quickly to the book of Exodus and just see one little passage here regarding Saul, regarding Moses and the instruction to build the tent. Um, the tent of meeting, because of course the tent is the shadow, the prefigurement, what Moses built for travel, right? Solomon's going to build for permanence. So the temple is built upon the pattern of the tent, but the pattern of the tent is built upon, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 25, chapter 25, verse eight. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it, right? Mm -hmm. So God shows him the pattern. And of course, and we don't need to go into this for much further. If you want to listen to my talk on uh, called Eden to Eden, the, the, the garden, the temple, and the Catholic church, we go into this in detail, but ultimately the pattern that Moses sees is the pattern of God's dwelling place in heaven. And then he goes and makes it here. And what's it look like? Lo and behold, it's the garden of Eden because the garden of Eden was the dwelling place of God on earth with men. Right. And so now we have this triangle between the, 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 the heavenly throne, the garden and the tent temple, right. Mm-hmm. Into which now we can add what Jesus comes to do, right? Yeah. It's all one reality. The garden, the throne of God, the temple in Jerusalem, the church established by Christ, one reality. Yeah. yeah? And it's not going to ultimately be built out of wood and rocks. That's the dead part left over after the fall. Jesus is going to come and take what Solomon has built out of wood, and he's going to raise it from the dead in three days. Yeah. Because ultimately the garden isn't built or the temple isn't built out of two by fours. It's built out of living stones. Hello, St. Peter. St. Peter talks about living stones in his epistle, which is you and me built in the living temple of living God because the temple on earth here that has the spirit of God within us is made in the image and likeness of the temple of God in heaven, which is God himself. And we talk about that in a minute. Let's go. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, just to uh, get the responsorial psalm in here, everything according to God's command. And then we have in Psalm 119, really um, an ode to his commands, to his law. Mm. Lord, I love your commands. And you can't think of this again as a dictatorial law. It's the how to build the temple. It's I love I love your instructions, Lord, of how my life is to be built up into the living temple of the living God. I want to be built. Up. That's a question. Do you want to be built up into the temple of the living God? 
And if your answer is yes, then he's going to give you the instructions on how it's to be built. I got blueprints over here because they're building our church hall. The blueprint of your life, my brothers and sisters, is right here. And if you follow that instruction, then you will live. And the spirit of God will dwell within you. But if you reject that instruction and you decide to go worship Pacamama or have homosexual so-called marriage against the word of God, your house will not stand. And that is my transition moment to the New Testament. Let's look at the gospel. (laughs) All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 13. And we are starting in verse 44 today. Yes. Let me know when you're ready, Father. You ready? Matthew chapter 13. I'm there. All right, here we go. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven go. Yes. Jesus said to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, which a person finds and hides again, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, which collects fish of every kind. When it is full, they haul it ashore and sit down to put what is good into buckets. What is bad, they throw away. Thus, it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Do you understand all these things? They answered, yes. And he replied, then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings from his storeroom both the new and the old. Hmm. You know, I've really been enjoying these, these, uh, we've been doing the parables, we've been doing these images of the, I've really been enjoying them, honestly, um, to go back and say, why is the Lord speaking this way? I know I keep saying this last few weeks, I've been saying the same thing. So important to remember, right? Context around him was going on and then giving, giving material uh, examples to immaterial realities so his learners can actually understand, can actually learn. So by this point, he's like, do you get it yet? I was going to ask, do you think they really get it? They're like, yes. <laughs> I love the, I, I, I love that response. And, and uh, because, because I think so they've been scratching their head, honestly, we're in verse 44, but if we l- look, if we just scan upwards, we've been doing all these ones, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven and, and so forth. And back in verse 24, another parable before the kingdom of heaven that may be compared, right? He's been going like this and. And then you have verse nine, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I, I kind of, I think when we read these couple of chapters, you kind of see what's going on that Jesus starts talking in parables and they're kind of like, can you, can you explain that one again? But by this point, he's just repeating himself. So I mean, he just keeps saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, yeah, yeah okay, I, we okay, got we it. Get it. Okay, we got it. <laughs> All right. Yes. Yes, we get it, Jesus. <laughs> but but I just remind you guys, again, those that context of, of what's going on, the argument taking place among the factions that are around him is real, right? And that's why he keeps, he's not only saying the kingdom of heaven is like, but he's like, yeah, but, and then remember what's going to happen to those guys over there. They're going to burn in hell. 
Yeah. I mean, this nice Jesus thing, get it out, out of your mind. It's not, this is not the case, right? I mean, he's, 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 he's a firebrand and he's, um, and he's letting it rip and, and he's almost getting on the edge where he's coming out and, and he's almost pointing fingers there toward the end of our text. Yeah. When he, he stops, he stops giving the examples and he says, thus, it will be at the end of the age. The, the, the angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous. Right now he says, now he says what he's talking about. He mm-hmm. says what the weeds are that we heard last week, right? Yeah. He calls it all out or two weeks ago, wherever that was. He calls it all out and he, t- he says very openly that he's talking about those that, around him. And it's, it's yeah. going to go from bad to worse for him here. Yeah. Well, let's talk about these kingdom parables that we have here the precious pearl the the hidden treasure in the field it it seems like the the kingdom is is like hidden or or at least hard to find am i mm. is that true yeah well okay i think that goes along with something i was hoping i'd be able to talk share with you about based upon what we were talking about earlier this triangle this connection right between yeah between the heavenly temple mm-hmm. the garden of eden and the earthly temple, if you will, right? The the, sure. the the thing built by Solomon. But then through that, if we draw another line out to the church, right? Or bring the church, the church into that triangle now. Um, because actually that's what you, you can do is you layer these, right? The garden, knowing the fall, the, the tent, on top of that, Solomon's temple, and on top of that, the church, all the same reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so I go back to um, my favorite quotation from Saint Porphyrios uh, regarding the regarding the church, because so many of us have a misunderstanding of what the church is. Um, and I know you're going to say, "I know, Father, the church is the people and like that." Yeah, but it's more than that. And Saint Porphyrios just is is so beautiful about this. First of all, the word church coming from the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia means gathering. So the church are those who gather together, yes, around the Lord. But this is what St. Porfirio says. The church is without beginning, without end, and eternal. Now, I got to stop because we're talking about the kingdom of heaven in the, in the, in the parable, right? Right. But you cannot, the, do you remember Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Yeah. Right. And why does he say it's at hand? It's not something, the kingdom of heaven is not something out there, guys, floating around in the clouds. For Jesus, for the Gospels, for us, the kingdom of heaven is present when Christ is present because of what St. Porfirio says. This is what he says. The church is without beginning, without end, and eternal, which is crazy, right? The church is an eternal. It, just as the triune God, her founder, is without beginning, without end, and eternal. She is uncreated just as God is uncreated. The church existed before the ages, before the angels, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world, as St. Paul says. She is a divine institution, and in her dwells the whole fullness of divinity. She's an expression of the richly varied wisdom of God. She is the mystery of mysteries. She was concealed and was revealed in the last times. The church, okay, she was concealed and revealed in the last times. So mm-hmm. The church is yeah. hidden. Yeah. The church remains unshaken because she's rooted in the love and wise providence of God. Here's the kicker. The three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute 
the eternal church, the eternal gathering. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The church on earth is truly in the image and likeness of the church in heaven. Which is what God created in the beginning. In the garden, in paradise. Which is why I can flip my Bible to the book of Revelation. To the fulfillment of all things. In chapter 22. Or chapter 21. And 22. And we can just look very quickly at this. Look at verse 21. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. The first heavens and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me. Well, the bride of God is the holy city, Jerusalem. Hmm. Hmm. Coming down from heaven. Wait a minute. Not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem coming down of heaven. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like the most rare jewel, like Jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the foundation stones of the temple are now coming alive. Yes? Because there, it's, it's, it, it's the gathering made in the image and likeness of the eternal gathering. This is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about. Why was it hidden? Because of sin. Because of the fall. The reality of this communion of the saints was broken. The relationships between men were broken when our relationship between God and men was broken. Because that's the only unity which can be bring unity, which is in the image and likeness of the one who is a unity from all eternity. Does that make sense? When the, when the fall happens, when this break happens, there can no longer be a union here. But when this thing is brought back together in the new covenant, who is Jesus, man and God joined together in the eternal word, now this communion can be restored, which is the church, which is the restoration of the communion of love God from all eternity is love, John tells us, and we are made his image and likeness, and therefore we are made for this loving community, pouring out of our life, for no greater love has any man than to give his life for his friend. This is the restoration of the church. The kingdom of heaven was hidden from man because he no longer could have communion with one another in any substantial way until this was fixed, which Jesus fixes. And now here we are again, the Garden of Eden restored, which is the Catholic church. To say it sounds pretty visible based on all of that it it becomes visible but of yeah. course in the midst of all that's going on around jesus at that moment it's really hard to discern it hard to see it because he's planting the seed the mustard seed i heard that in a book one time i read oh, yeah, or maybe I a gospel we looked at about two weeks ago the mustard seed 
right? But now he's going to put the hoe into our hands. Hey, why didn't he just come and be like, why didn't he just come and restore it all? Yeah, because he wants us in there doing our image and likeness stuff, hoeing <laughs> the garden. Yeah, he wants us in there building up the garden, making it be what it is because he is the builder and creator of it. And he puts us in, in his shoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. kingdom of heaven, we, I know we, 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 we've gone very long on this whole point, but it, it lays that foundation. Now, I hope our Sunday gospel reflection that we're doing together can be what it's meant to be. And that is a seedbed into which your priest can now preach his homily regarding your community, your church in St. Louis or in Cincinnati or in Sacramento or in Arlington or in where, wherever that kingdom is, is, is coalescing, is gathering together. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Yeah. And it's something to which we are called to give everything for we have found the pearl of great price. I'm going to share with you St. Hilary of Poitiers. Through the comparison of a treasure in the field of our hope, Christ points to wealth that has been covered up. For God is discovered in humanity. In com compensation for it, all the resource resources of the world are to be sold in order that with the clothing, food, and drink of the needy, we may buy the eternal riches of the heavenly treasure. But we must realize that the treasure was found and hidden. For he who found it could certainly have carried it off in secret at the time he hid it and carried it off and, and carrying it off. There would have been no need for him to buy it. But an explanation is needed here to be to, to both the matter concerned and what was said. Thus, the treasure was hidden because it was necessary to buy the field. The treasure in the field, as we said, signifies Christ in the flesh who we have found freely. Indeed, the preaching of the gospel has no strings attached, but the power to use and to own this treasure with the field comes at a price, for heavenly riches are not possessed without worldly loss. Mm -hmm. I love the saints, so beautiful. And I, I go with that question to you, as I've done before, and I did earlier. Do you want it? Do you want the kingdom of heaven? Is it the pearl of great price in your life? Or is it something that I just have to go to do on Sunday so that I can get on with the rest of my day and the rest of my week? Is the culmination of everything in your life? Is it everything that you want? Then give everything to obtain it. Which, I mean, I think leads us so seamlessly into Romans chapter eight. And well, I sure episode. hope it does, Annie. Because, I mean, I we've been, you know, we've been spending quite a few weeks in Matthew chapter 13, and we've been sitting in Romans chapter 8, which has just been, I mean, every week, I have just been blown away by the words of St. Paul. And I think that this is so beautifully, I mean, we're just going through Romans, but yeah. it it fits so nicely with this. So can, can we read the whole thing? Yes, please. Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 is where we're starting. Okay. Brothers and sisters, we know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. 
And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. St. John Chrysostom, what a superb honor. For what the only begotten Son was by nature, we have become by grace. Christ in his human nature has become the firstborn of many brethren, even though in his divine nature he remains the only begotten Son of God. My brothers and sisters, we are being built, we are called, we built up into the temple of God. We are baptized into Christ that we might stand in the communion of the Holy Trinity. Yes, this is the superb gift which you are as a Christian, which you ought to understand as the temple of God, being restored in the image and likeness of God for which you are made. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.